Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles to again to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? This is the final week we'll be in 1 Corinthians 12. And let us begin by reading verses 26 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 12. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the church, the body of Christ, and its various members, he says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Now there's to be a solidarity among the people of God. It was interesting reading the commentaries on this that um, one of the people that studied it and wrote on it said that there's a new word that we can use to describe what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here. And so, you know, I'm always up for new words, you know? And so I thought, what is this word? Well, the word was solidarity, all right? All of us discovered that word with Lech, well, I said, over in Poland, you know, that was when that word exploded into my brain. And you think about the solidarity of a nation under the oppression of communism, that they finally, down at the docks, they rose up against it. And they decided that they as a people would have a solidarity that would say no to the Iron Curtain and to the oppression of, of the Soviet Union, right? And, and, and groups of people can have a certain uh, awakening moment where they decide we're not going to take it anymore, all right? Well, that's not what I'm talking about when I speak of solidarity here. I'm speaking about the solidarity that the people of God have, not because they belong to China or to the United States, but because we belong to Jesus. And an awful lot of our lives as Christians um, consists of us feeling the pulling pressure of various demands on us and deciding whether our identity is going to be in Christ, an adopted son and daughter of God in the household of faith, the church, or whether we're going to choose to put, give first priority to the Communist Party, uh, to uh, American capitalism, to being Hispanic, to being a Bailey, my last name. And all these things put pressure on us to relegate Jesus Christ 
and his blood in our life and to choose ethnicity, to choose uh, various ideologies, feminism, to choose uh, countries, United States of America, Mexico. And we're always in this situation where we're making decision, who am I? You remember the Who's song, right? Who am I? Who are you? Who are you? That's what the world is always saying to Christians. Who are you? And the world is always trying to get us to relegate Jesus Christ and the church and to elevate everything else. A number of years ago, there was a, a scholar up at uh, University of Chicago called Martin Marty. And uh, he and my dad knew each other. He was uh, uh, sort of the dean of church historians in the United States at the time. And Martin Marty gave himself to a huge product um, of publishing, which was to develop a massive encyclopedia of fundamentalisms. It was called the Fundamentalism Project. And back about 30, 35 years ago, um, the religious scene in America was all bound up with trying Christians, trying to deny they were fundamentalists. I'm not a fundamentalist. And all the scholars saying how awful fundamentalists are. And I can remember a professor at my seminary making fun of fundamentalists and talking about how awful fundamentalists were because fundamentalists are narrow, fundamentalists are rigid, fundamentalists are awful. So then I go into the PCUSA, and we had this uh, neo-Orthodox uh, sort of bishop. They call him an executive presbyter in Presbyterian circle. He's just a bishop, right? And I go in, and my bishop looks at me, and he says, as I understand it, you're an evangelical. Well, back then, evangelicals were giving every ev evidence of betraying Scripture that they are today in full bloom on. Evangelicals were were just falling all over themselves trying to get everybody to think that we were intellectuals, all right? And so my executive presbyter looked at me and said, so you're an evangelical. And I knew what he meant. You, you are not a fundamentalist, right? You're an evangelical. In other words, you're an intellectual. You're reasonable. You're a Christian who is willing to trade on the name of Jesus as the times demand, right? And so I looked at him, I said, John, I am not an evangelical. I am a fundamentalist. Now, why did I do that? Well, because I didn't want him to think that I was in play. Do you understand this? And this is always what's going on with us as Christians. Everybody really wants to know, are you in play? That's all they want to know about us. Are you in play? In other words, are you reasonable? And the labels change, you know, nobody's going around saying they're a fundamentalist today, right? So I talked to my dad and I told my dad about how David Wells was saying that fundamentalism was awful. And my father, who was much older than Wells and remembered the first part of the 20th century, said this. He said, we were all fundamentalists. Now, what was my dad saying? My dad was saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God. That's what my dad was saying. 
this is what we have to decide, is whether our identity and unity is in the body of Christ, or whether it's being an American, whether it's being rich or poor, whether it's being black, white, or Hispanic, whether it's being union or management. No. Whether it's being a Bailey or a Wagner. No. Jesus says that you can't follow him unless you hate your father and mother. Father and mother is the the foundational, basic allegiance that everybody thinks is absolutely necessary for us to have as our principal commitment. So Jesus didn't talk about Samaritans and uh, Jews, although he did that with the Samaritan woman. Jesus just went right for the jugular. No man can follow me unless he hates his father and his mother, his husband, his wife, his son, and his daughter. In other words, you take the most fundamental commitment that every Christian thinks it's just being a Christian to be committed to my husband. I mean, how could I have to choose between my husband and Jesus? Well, (laughs) let me count the ways, right? And those of you who are women who have been married know precisely how many times you have to choose Jesus over your husband, including the best marriages here. And so here we have the Corinthians, and they've got all these things that are pulling on them to get them to relegate. And so back then, the question is, are you a reasonable Christian who is willing, for instance, to go ahead and be a part of your fireman's guild, Because back then they had guilds, you know, clubs, fraternities. And whether you'll go ahead and sacrifice to the idol of your guild, you know, Chi Alpha, whatever it is, back then it was gods. And they would sacrifice to their god as a part of their club meeting. And then they would eat the food. And the Apostle Paul's dealing with the identity of everybody. And he's saying to them, listen, Jesus is first. The church is first. You're the body of Christ. It does matter what you do. You have to have your principal commitment to him. In American, uh, in the last 30 years, what's gone on is everybody has said that the worst thing you can possibly do is be a fundamentalist. Okay? And so Martin Marty is at the University of Chicago, and he does this huge development of all these books of all the fundamentalisms around the world. Right? So what is a fundamentalism? You know, what's a fundamentalism? You know, who is a sophisticated, reasonable Christian and who's a fundamentalist Christian? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I went to the seminary that said no to fundamentalism, but I was a fundamentalist. And here's what a fundamentalism is. A fundamentalism is anybody who thinks that eternity is more important than this life. That's it. That's it. It doesn't get more complicated than that. If you live for anything other than today, you are a fundamentalist, okay? In other words, if you live for God, if you live for eternity, if you're aware of the judgment seat of God, if you live in view of the judgment seat of God today, if you relegate your family to a subordinate status to Jesus Christ, you're a fundamentalist. But today we don't call them fundamentalists, do we? Today we call them cults. <laughs> you know, anybody that chooses their family to be second after God, it's a cult. 
<laughs> you know? No reasonable person would ever ask you to make a decision between your mother and God or your grandmother and God. But the fact is, this church is filled with people who have made decisions between their mother and God. Right? And you choose God. And why do you choose God? Well, you choose God because your mother's wicked. That's why. And you say, well, how did you know my mother? And I said, because I know my wife. Are you saying your wife is wicked? Yes. Well, that's not very nice. Well, it's just a fact. Well, what about you? Are you wicked? And I'm like, duh. <laughs> Listen, we are just men and women, and we are fallen. That's who we are. And so to make a choice between our mother or our father, especially the most godly mother and God, is an infinitely distinctive choice. It, the, the chasm between your godly grandmother and God is so huge that you shouldn't hesitate for a second to say, I'm a fundamentalist. I'm, I'm in a cult, and the cult is Jesus Christ. Why was it that the early church was called upon to say that to, to, to bow before Caesar and, 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 and to take back Jesus as Lord. What was the signature of the early church? The early church's signature is what? Jesus is Lord. That's all they had to say, and they could die. What were they saying when they said Jesus is Lord? They were saying, not my mother, not my father, not Caesar, not the Oracle of Delphi, not great as Diana of the Ephesians. Jesus, Jesus, okay? So every man, every woman, every child who has seen his sin and has repented and, 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 and fallen beneath Jesus and the cross and washed in his blood, every single one of us is a fundamentalist in the sense that every single one of us is living now for then. And the world will never tolerate that. That's what Stalin hated. Stalin hated anything that would come in the path between his effort to turn every citizen of the Soviet Union into a perfect materialist who would only care about food. And so, Christians had to go, right? But you know who else had to go? All the Calics. Who are the Calics? Well, they're the ones that loved their land because they'd been farming the same plot of land for generations. And so what did Stalin do to all the Calics? He starved them to death by the millions. Why? Well, because he was a pure materialist, and not only could he not stand Christians who honored God, he could not stand men and women who loved their land, because loving of your land puts you in opposition to the state. Do you see this? The state is an absolutely jealous God. And the state wants you to think that it matters whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump is elected. It matters, but remember my favorite statement about politics is 
from Samuel Johnson who said, why, sir, all schemes of political improvement are laughable things. Listen, our future is not bound up with the United States of America. Yes, we should pray that God will give us peace so that the gospel can go out. But instead, we start praying for peace so our identity politics are more secure. We're not supposed to have peace so that we can feel more secure and more superior. We're supposed to have peace so that the gospel can go out because peace is prosperous for the gospel. That's supposed to be what we care about. So here are the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are fighting amongst themselves on every level. And they're even taking the sweet gifts and offices that God has brought into the church for the unification of the church, all right, and they're using the gifts and the offices to fight against each other. This is precisely what's going on in the church in America today. It's exactly what's going on, where you have churches who are just absolutely at each other's throat about whether we're going to have deaconesses, deacons, or deeks. And men are standing up on the floor of general assembly saying, my daughters feel disenfranchised in this church because they can't lead like men can lead. When are you going to start talking about what women can do instead of what they can't do? And you go like, uh, well, the Apostle Paul said what women can't do, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so do you want me to forget that? Does that not apply today? You know? So today, we're fighting over whether women should be pastors, whether women should be elders, whether women can preach, whether women can be deacons, and it's precisely what was going on in the Corinthian church. The only thing is, it wasn't as visible, and it wasn't labeled feminism, you know, it was just be all you can be. You know, I shouldn't have to shut up because I'm a woman. Nothing changes. And so we have to decide does it matter more that I'm a man or a woman, or does it matter more that Jesus Christ desires his church to be one? What are we going to do? Are we going to give ourselves to identity politics in the church? Are all the Reformed churches going to be intellectuals and all the Baptist churches going to be men with calluses on their hands? It's just disgusting. We're one in Christ. We have solidarity. We love each other. We are not going to fight with each other because we're black or white, Chinese or North American, male or female. Union or management. We're not going to do it. Why? Because we're fundamentalists. And what is a fundamentalist? It's somebody that can actually get his head out of himself and see the big picture. And it's so ironic because that's precisely what everybody who hates fundamentalism would say fundamentalists aren't. You know, somebody that hates God in eternity in the judgment seat would say, well, fundamentalists are people that can never get themselves out, get their heads out of themselves and see the big picture. But it's precisely the opposite. So here is the descriptive verse that describes when fundamentalism prevails in a church so that The unity of the church matters more than the individual gifts and the individual color of skin and all that other crud, okay? Here it is. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, 
all the members rejoice with it. Okay? Okay? So is that us? As a church, is that us? When one member suffers, do we all suffer? Now, I have to admit to you that I just go back and forth over Facebook. I, you know, I, I often argue with myself. If I have two opinions at the same time arguing. And when I can't handle it, I ask Andrew to take one of the opinions and argue with me. All right? Which is what we did between services. I can't stand Facebook. I look at it. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I look at it. All right? How does that bear on this? Well, what you all think is that Facebook is the place now where when one member suffers, all the members suffer with that one person. To the degree that we have common solidarity, love, fellowship, unity, we perceive that as coming through Facebook. All right? What is the definition of a fellow church member? A fellow church member is somebody you won't unfriend. Because that would look bad. <laughs> right? I mean, is that a good definition? I just came up with it just off the top of my head, right? <laughs> you know? What, now that you're a member, we should add this to the membership vows. You promise you will not unfriend anybody who is another member of this church, you know? <laughs> now, here's my problem. My problem is that what happens on Facebook is a combination of genuine and completely, completely false. Because the truth is, you can't really be in solidarity with everybody who's a friend of yours on Facebook. First of all, you have to deal with the fact that a lot of the people you're friend with, friends with don't know Jesus. They don't love him. They're not fundamentalists. All right? Second of all, even the people that are Christians that you're friends with on Facebook, you don't really care about their suffering just because you read their updates. In fact, those updates create in you a sort of smugness about your solidarity with people that are suffering that are completely false. Because I defy you to read Chris and Shelley Connell's update on Anastasia. And then to tell me that that bears any resemblance whatsoever to you going up to the hospital and sitting with them for an hour. Are you with me? There's no resemblance. Okay? And so here you got Facebook, and it purports to be technology finally allowing us to suffer with one member of the church who suffers. And what we do is we sit in our cocoons in our homes, and we look at the pictures, and we punch the movies, and, and we give the likes and the hearts and the shout-outs, all this Those of you that know me well are laughing right now. I think I just did well. Did I do well, Janet? I think I did well. Andrew says I did well. I did well, okay? This stuff is just baloney, right? This is baloney. And so, listen, we have to, to stop being superficial when we say that when one member suffers, all the members suffer with them. There is no replacement for... <laughs> There's no replacement for embodied theology. Some of us are old enough to remember what that means. <laughs> but I'm, I'm taking it over. 
Forget them. It doesn't matter that they used to mean something different. We need to live in such a way that our bodies are ourselves. Okay, to take another book, right? You remember the feminist, you know, our bodies, ourselves. Listen, Christians, our body is ourself, and that works with your body going up to the hospital and sitting with Anastasia and her family, and that works with you are a part of this body. We cannot have virtual church. Do you get it? It won't work. You record everything I'm doing, you put it up on the web or you put it up on a screen of another place, and it is a complete violation of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a complete violation because there is no similarity between me looking in your eyes as I preach to you and knowing you. (laughs) Some of you I don't know, but I know you, Christian. And so as I preach, can you understand that God wants us to know each other? He wants the man preaching to you to know you, right? And he wants to preach to you, he wants me to preach to you in a way that addresses the particular sins and the particular beauties of each one of you. You can't do virtual church and you can't do virtual mourning with those who mourn. You can't do it. You have to have your body there with them. You have to touch them. You have to love them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You have to eat with them. God is not virtual. And his church is not virtual. His church can't be reduced to a bunch of bytes in a computer that goes over wire or over uh, fiber optics. It will never work. It will never work. And so when one member suffers, we all suffer with the member, and there's no, no, there's nothing that can replace presence and embodiment. There's nothing that can replace touch. There's nothing that can replace tears. And don't you tell me you sit at your Facebook page and you shed tears. I don't want to hear about it. Go to them and shed tears, okay? Love them. Taylor in high school, our youngest son, he just used to sit there. He was supposed to be doing homework. And if any of you know how to get a child to do homework, tell me. Because I've been a a wonderful failure at that. I mean, I was very good with the first four children because they did it without me having to make them do it. But then along came Taylor, and he reminded me of myself, and I just started shaking. <laughs> you know? And what would he do? He'd do Facebook. And I can't tell you how many times I'd look at him and I'd say, Taylor, be here now. <laughs> Which is another old book that we don't care what they meant then. Be here now. And Jesus says to us through the Apostle Paul, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Yeah, we're going to keep doing Facebook, but you get the point. We have to have bodies and tears and presence with each other to do this. There's no substitution for our homes. When I heard this, um, 
the first time, as I began to preach a month ago, I immediately thought of a famous quote. I don't know if any of you are thinking the same quote I'm thinking of. But as soon as I heard this, I thought of a certain British poet. And I thought of his statement, what? No man what? No man is an island. And so this morning I want to read, it's actually not a poem. Everybody thinks it's, uh, the poem is uh, No Man is an Island, but it's not. It's actually a very short devotional written by John Donne. John Donne lived four centuries ago, and he's a man that lived at the edge of death constantly, and so he had very pure thoughts, because death purifies your thoughts. He wrote a lot about death, and this is the meditation that that comes from. It's Meditation 17 from his devotions upon emergent occasions, and it has the heading, Now this bell tolling softly for another says to me, Thou must die. Now, what is a tolling bell? Don't ask for whom the bell tolls. Well, at our church in Wisconsin, it was a classic Presbyterian church. No stained glass windows because we don't believe in images in worship. White clapboard sides tall steeple, clad in copper, and in that steeple was a bell. And coming down from that bell into the foyer of the church were two ropes, a thin one and a thick one. The thick one was what you pulled to turn the bell, to get the bell swinging. The thin one was attached to what? The clapper. Just the little bong bong thing. And so when you pull on the thin one, all you're doing is immediately shoving that that bonger into the bell. The clap, you know, what do they call that thing? The clapper? What? Anyhow, you get my point. The heavy one had to do the bell, the thin one had to do the clapper. All right. Now, what is the difference between a bell tolling and a bell peeling? The difference is that you toll the bell with the thin cord, you peel the bell with a thick cord. So when our, our daughter Hannah was born, we had the, the elders and the secretary and our, our relatives all sitting at a picnic table outside of, the, outside of the bedroom where Mary Lee was in labor. And yeah, not many people are going to laugh at that one. When she gave birth... They opened the wine, poured glasses, toasted to the new life, and then they went into the church and they grabbed the thick bell and they pulled it and pulled it and pulled it and it went blang, 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 and it's joy. On Good Friday, you go into that front entryway and you pull the thin cord and it tolls the bell. Boing, 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 and it announces the death of Jesus. Okay? And John Donne is talking about what? Peeling? No, he's talking about tolling. Why is he talking about tolling? Well, because you pull the clapper in a disciplined way, all right, and that announces death. All right. Now this bell, tolling softly for another, says to me, thou must die. Now listen to this. It's a very short devotion, and I'm reading about two-thirds of it. He says, the church is Catholic. We often have people complain that we confess 
I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What the word Catholic means is one, united. We're not saying we're Roman Catholic. We're saying we're one, one church, one church. The church is Catholic, universal, so are all her actions. All that she does belongs to all. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? We're one. All over the world, those under the blood of Jesus are one. When she, and she is the church, when she baptizes a child, that action concerns me. For that child is thereby connected to that head, which is my head too, and engrafted into that body whereof I, whereof I am a member. Okay? When a child's baptized, they take the, the, Jesus as their head, and I'm their body, so that baptism has to do with me. And when she buries a man, that action concerns me. All mankind is of one author and is one volume. When one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. So, okay, what we're dealing with here is, he's saying, okay, when somebody's baptized, they become one with me. I become one with them, right? Father Bill last night was talking about standing up to be the godfather to his future son-in-law. He didn't have a Christian father. He's the godfather. And it doesn't matter that he's not related by blood. This family is eternal. Okay, and so John Dunn goes on and says, not just like with baptism, but also with death. When one member dies, that member is translated into heaven, right? Changed, translated. We shall be changed, all right? And he says that the the chapter of that person's life, right? We watch them live, you watch Glenn live, and I kept thinking of you and Glenn the whole way through this. When Glenn dies, his chapter isn't pulled out of this church, He is here. He's here every single time those of us who knew him are assembled for worship. Glenn is here. He's translated, but his chapter hasn't ceased to exist. It's not pulled out of God's book. God has translated it, all right, into a better language. (laughs) Okay, every one of our loved ones who has died in Christ is now translated into a better language. Okay? Then he says this, and every chapter must be so translated. You're going to be translated. We shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. All right? Every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. So what's a translator? Well, he lists them. Some pieces are translated by age. In other words, as I get older, I'm going to die. Sometimes old age kills us. We're translated. Then he says, some by sickness. Some of us will get sick and be translated. He says, some by war. And he says, some by justice. Now, what's he talking about there? He's not embarrassed. Capital punishment. The Lord gives the sword to the civil magistrate. It doesn't mean that that person is not saved. But the instrument God uses to translate 
a believer who is murdered and suffers the penalty for murder in this life, all right, that believer is translated by justice into a better language. Then he says this, but God's hand, the hand of God is in every translation, and his hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves again for that library where every book shall lie open to one another. In other words, we're all in the process of having our lives make sense. And they'll make sense when we enter heaven and we open up the entire book of every one of our lives, and all of a sudden, everything makes sense to us because God opens it up for everyone. In the grand library of heaven, your dead loved ones are still here. They live, and they live infinitely better because they're not corrupted by sin. A Christian desires three things with regard to sin, okay? Justification, that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification, that it doesn't reign, R-A-I-G-N. And glorification, that it will not be, okay? And so he goes on, and he's talking about death. And he says, as therefore the bell that rings to a sermon. So now he's saying, okay, it doesn't just toll for death, but it also rings to a sermon. In other words, it peals. And so we would ring that bell every single Sunday morning and we would peel it because it was the joy of coming to a sermon. We hope to have a bell out here that we're going to ring with joys to summon everybody to the preaching of the word. And I want to make a note to Father Bill, who is Anglican, as John Donne was, that he summons them to the sermon. <laughs> he doesn't summon them to the Lord's table. Nah, it's just John Donne. You can argue with John Donne, but have fun on that one. <laughs> you know. Listen, I'm not denigrating the Lord's table, but what is our joy when we come together but the word of God? And then, because the word has been preached, we come to the Lord's table and we have unity because the word of God unifies us. And he says, when that bell peals for a sermon, it doesn't call the preacher only, but it calls the congregation to come. It calls everybody to come. So this bell calls us out. So he's now gone back to tolling and death. But how much more me, who am brought so near to the door by this sickness? So he's hearing a bell tolling for a death, and he's very sick, and he says, the bell tolls for me. He sees his solidarity with the one who has just died, and he knows he's about to go. Then he says this, are you ready? Okay, if you had not been looking at Facebook for the last 10 years, you would know this, <laughs> all right? No man is an island. Entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. As well as if a promontory were, and so you have to understand that Florida is a promontory, and it's huge. A clod is a small piece of dirt, and he says, if you wash off a clod, or if you wash off a promontory, we're less. And this is a, such a beautiful illustration of what Scripture says here. One member suffers, we all suffer. If some tiny clod 
some jerk of a man dies, we're the less, just as much as if the entire state of Florida were to go off. All right? Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Isn't that beautiful? You and I in Christ are one. If I die, you grieve. If you die, I grieve. If your mother dies, I grieve. If my daughter dies, you grieve. Because no man is an island. Then he says, and this is going to, this is going to, then he says, neither can we call this a begging of misery or a borrowing of misery as though we were not miserable enough of ourselves, but must fetch in more from the next house in taking upon us the misery of our neighbors. In other words, what he's saying is, look, you might think this is perverse because I know you hate suffering. And you say to me, why would I want to make another man's death my death? I'm going to die soon enough, and I have misery, and I don't need to be thinking about another man's death. Why would I go into some other house that has a house of mourning when my house is having a party? Right? Right? He says, do you think this is perverse that I would talk about grief and death being yours when it really isn't yours, right? And he says this, truly, it were an excusable covetousness if we did. In other words, if we make another man's suffering and another home of mourning our home, if we enter a home of mourning, if we go when we could be happy in our own home to a home of mourning, if we obey Scripture, which is when one suffers, we all suffer, he says this is not perverse. He says, this is reasonable, rational, logical. This is excellent for us to make others suffering our suffering. And now listen why. You ready? He says, for affliction is a treasure. Now that's the sentiment that I see on every Facebook page. <laughs> you know how often you've read that phrase on Facebook. Affliction is a treasure. Okay. For affliction is a treasure, and scarce any man has enough of it. No man has affliction enough that is not matured and ripened by it. In other words, when you have affliction, it will mature you and ripen you. And ripening is good. And made fit for God by that affliction. You're made ready for the presence of the Lord when you suffer. When you, when you take on somebody else's suffering, you're made ready for the presence of the Lord. He goes on and he says, If a man carry treasure in bullion or in a wedge of gold, and hath none coined into current monies, his treasure will not defray him as he travels. In other words, he's saying, let's say you don't have any pennies or dimes or quarters, no dollar bills, no checks, no credit card. You have none of the currency of this land that will be accepted at any store, by any motel, by any restaurant, okay? But you have a hunk of gold. <laughs> but the problem is you can't use a hunk of gold to go into Lucky's, right? Or Kroger or Walmart. 
You may have unbelievable wealth there, but it's useless, right? If you're walking around with a hunk of gold, right? All right, now listen to this. Tribulation is treasure in the nature of it, but it's not current money in the use of it, except we get nearer and nearer our home, heaven, by it. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. this is why we read. Can you even imagine that being on Facebook? That we who belong to Jesus have affliction as our hunk of gold. And it's true, we can't go to Dairy Queen. It's true, we can't get likes on Facebook. It's true that we can't eat it. But nothing else prepares us for heaven. Nothing. Only suffering. Affliction. This is the tool God uses. And when you hear John Donne say this, you begin to think of all the scriptures that teach this. That Jesus says, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross. If a man would save his life, he'll lose it. But if he'll lose his life for my sake, he'll find it. And we go, oh, affliction. Jesus says, must I not obey my father? Must I not bear the cross that he has called me to? And we go, oh, affliction. Jesus had affliction. If Jesus had affliction, can I, can I follow him? I think I can. And then we hear Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you go, why would you be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, you wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in most churches and most parachurch ministries today because it's just glorious. But the minute affliction comes back to the cross of Jesus Christ and the minute we're called to follow Jesus in affliction, all of a sudden we're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then we see that the Apostle Paul says, don't be ashamed of my suffering. <laughs> and we go, well, why would you be ashamed of Paul's suffering? Well, because he's in chains. Alexander the metalsmith did him much harm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. Don't ask who's afflicted. How do you make a distinction between me being afflicted and you being afflicted? If I'm up here crying, you will cry, won't you? You will. I promise you, you will. So if you cry, I'll cry. And we're not all getting together and being victims. We're simply reflecting the character that Jesus is commanded to pervade in the church. That's it. Okay? Affliction is a precious gift from God. And you think, well, if I just put up with it a little bit longer, it'll leave. And I say, no, next time it'll be more intense. And this will be your life until you die. And you either begin to love it because it's the gold bullion that will prepare you to stand before the judgment seat of God. Or you hate it and then, okay, here I go. It's, this isn't the church for you. I think this is going to be a recurring theme with me, you know. Once I got stomped on by everybody for saying that, it, it like got fixated in my brain. And so now I'm just going to say it over and over and over and over again. I don't mean to say that if you have trouble with suffering and affliction that I don't want to hear from you. What I mean is we will put affliction before you as the gold bullion of eternity constantly. And inevitably, the time will come when you either decide that you're going to love God because he disciplines those he loves, 
or you're going to be done with a church that teaches you that God disciplines those he loves. That's what I mean. Okay. Now I want to end by doing something. Remember last week I did something that was weird? I want to end by doing something, which is, for approximately 30 years, I've known a man who's here today named Bill Mauser and his wife, Barbara. And Bill, and then Barbara, as I got to know her, although Bill and I were the ones that were really acquainted, Bill has given me great strength. Do you know there's no other man in this country who's given me more strength to fight the battles of today than Bill Mauser? This is Bill right here. Raise your hand his cane. And Father Bill has almost nobody who knows his name and who loves him and respects him. And he's not going to be with us much longer. And he has spent his life trying to correct the church. And people laugh at him, right? You know that, right? David knows him. David is sitting next to him. Why do you think David's sitting next to him? Because David loves Bill Mauser. And so I want to honor him because this man has been faithful. And it might be decades before any pastor stands in front of you and is able to introduce to you somebody who has said, I will not cave. I will not be ashamed of the words of Jesus Christ. And so, Bill, I thank God for you. And, you know, I'm not flattering him. He probably likes me less because I've done this. His wife loves me more. <laughs> but Father Bill probably despises me because this isn't an Anglican thing to do, but hang it, I'm not an Anglican. <laughs> and he's happy I'm not. <laughs> probably. Well, I mean, you know. I mean, a lot of what, I, what, what did he say? He just said there's always hope. Yeah, there's always hope. Yeah. <laughs> So what I'd like to do as we come to the Lord's table is, um, David, would you come up here and would you pray God's blessing on Bill and Barbara? Because all of us should honor him. If Paul were here, we'd want to honor him, right? This man, he's not Paul, but he's up there with him.